Don't ask me to explain for you how one can start again, how hardened hearts can soften like a child. Don't ask me how to reason out the mysteries of life or how to face its problems with a smile. Go ask the man who's found a way through tangled roads back home to stay when all communications were destroyed. Go ask the child Who's walking now, who once was crippled, then somehow her useless legs were made to jump for joy. Go ask the one whose burned out mind has been restored. I think you'll find the questions not important as before don't ask me if he's good or bad i only know the guilt i had is gone and i can't tell you anymore don't ask me how to prove to you why I know God is there or how I know that he could care for you don't ask me why someone so great would choose to walk with you or trade my broken life for one that's new Go ask the child who's got a dad to love away the hurt he had before. This man called Jesus touched their lives. Go ask the one whose fears have fled, whose churning heart was quieted when someone whispered peace to all her strife. Go ask the man to tell you more whose life was just a raging war inside himself until the Savior came. I don't pretend to be so wise I only know he touched my eyes and nothing else will ever be the same no I don't pretend to be so wise I only know he touched my eyes and nothing else will ever be the same. No, nothing else will ever be the same.
Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't pretend to be so wise that we have all the answers, but we know the one who does have all the answers. We know the one who is the answer. Let our lives always point back to you, not just in words. Let our lives speak of you. Let us be living testaments of your life-changing power through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray today that you will visit with us, open our hearts to your word, encourage us, uplift us, and challenge us, Lord. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Something very curious and yet profound occurred in the Washington, D.C. metro station on a cold January morning in 2007. A man with a violin stood there and played six Bach pieces for about an hour. During the course of that time, over 2,000 people passed by, most of them on their way to work. About three minutes into it, an elderly gentleman noticed there was music playing. He listened for a very short while and then kept walking, not really slowing his pace. At about four minutes, the, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money into the hat and kept walking without slowing her pace at all. Six minutes into it, a, a young man leaned against a wall to listen to the music. Th then he looked at his watch and he kept going hurriedly on his way. Ten minutes in, a three-year-old child holding his mother's hand stopped to listen to the musician. His mother tugged him along hurriedly and the boy kept going. He stopped one more time. His mother tugged a little harder and the boy kept going, all the while turning his head to look. The scene was repeated maybe half a dozen times. And in every case, every parent would pull their child along hurriedly and keep going to meet their schedule. At 45 minutes, the violinist received his last dollar. All in all, only six people really stopped to listen for a very short while, and the musician collected $32. At one hour, he played his last note, and silence took over. There was no applause. There was no recognition, no fanfare. Nobody knew it at the time, but the musician, the violinist, was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in all the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces of music that's ever been written on a violin worth three and a half million dollars. Two days later, Joshua Bell would sell out in Boston where, where the average ticket price was $100 a seat. Joshua Bell playing incognito in the Washington DC metro station was, was an experiment, a social experiment put on by the Washington Post. It was a social experiment on people's tastes, preferences, awareness, and priorities. The questions raised were these. In a commonplace environment, at an inappropriate and inconvenient, unexpected time, do we recognize the extraordinary? Can we, can we stop 
and adjust our lives, our schedule, our time to take it in and appreciate it. You know, 2,000 years ago, the nation of Israel and all of the spiritual leaders of the day were awaiting the arrival of a Messiah. And God incarnate came to us at an inappropriate hour, in an unexpected place, very unexpected time, and in a very unexpected way. Jesus Christ was born as the answer to all of mankind's questions. The extraordinary came to us. And, and, and how did we, as a collective human race, respond? Did we extol and lift him up as ruler and king of all? Did we, did we hang on his every word and follow his every footstep? No, we, we put him to death. We strung him up to die because why? Some were too busy to care. They didn't notice. Some didn't believe he was who he said he was. But worse still, some did. But it was an inconvenient truth. And sometimes it's just easier to bury the truth than to change our lives in light of it. Jesus Christ came to us and asked the single most important question that's ever been asked to mankind. It's a question he still asks today. I want us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 13. And for a little bit of a geographical background, Jesus and his disciples had ventured into the district of Caesarea Philippi. It's an area about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, about 120 miles from Jerusalem. What's interesting about this area is that it's strongly identified with a cornucopia of religions. It had been a center for Baal worship. There were numerous shrines there for the Greek god Pan. Herod the Great built a massive marble temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. And it was in the midst of all of these pagan shrines and idols and superstitions that Jesus poses the question. The most important question. Let's look. Starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. Here it is. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You know, th this conversation is so relevant today. What does the world say about Jesus? Great prophet, great teacher, great spiritual leader. All of these opinions are still so voiced today. In fact, the world at large is very comfortable talking about Jesus in those terms. Jesus is a great historical prophet. One billion Muslims would agree with you. Jesus, is, as a great teacher of moral truth, love it. Every movement from Hinduism to Hollywoodism would jump all over that. 
But Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Stop. You've crossed the line. And how is it so easy to accept all of what Jesus said as truth except this part? Why is it such a hard pill for the world to swallow? Well, the reason there are consequences to that truth. When we accept the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it sets off a chain reaction, a domino effect of follow-up questions that get very personal very quickly. See, acceptance of the fact that Jesus was a great prophet or a great teacher ends there. We accept it and we move on. But to accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God means that we accept His divinity, we accept His sacrifice at Calvary, we accept His perfection and His plan of salvation. Then it follows. How do we respond? It begs the question, how do we respond to His offer of salvation, of forgiveness for our sins and eternal life? And, and then from that, how have our lives our everyday lives been changed in light of our response? How has that impacted our actions, our priorities, our attitudes? How have they been shaped by that decision? It's a chain reaction that requires a life-changing decision on our part. See, there are questions we can answer with words. Those are the easiest kind. But there are questions that must be answered with our lives. Today, Jesus Christ stands before you just like he did to those disciples 2,000 years ago, and he asks the question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? <laughs> Lord, that's simple. I'm, I, I go to church. I know how to answer this. I know exactly who you are. You're the son of God. You're the Stop. Before we're so quick to answer in words, we must understand God doesn't want our words. You know, the, the best possible answer that could be given is from the devil himself. The devil himself could, could, could give the greatest, most articulate, most eloquent, most scripturally, scripturally doctrinal statement to that answer. But words are meaningless here. How do our lives answer the question? God doesn't want our words. Remember his conversation with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, of course I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. What did Jesus say? Then go tell all the world. Be, be eloquent. Speak in words. Tell them all. No, he said, then feed my sheep. I want your answer evident in the actions of your life. If we believe and say that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of our lives. If, if that is our faith and foundation, then it's got to show forth in the way we live our lives. Amen. Today, I want us to look at four, four points, four things in our lives in which our faith must be clearly evident. Our choices, our causes, our character, and our service. First point. Is our faith evident in our choices? One of the most difficult things we do on a daily basis is make decisions, isn't it? From the minute we wake up and make the mundane decisions of, of what to wear, what to eat, what to do that day, to the larger life decisions of which school to attend, 
what career to pursue, where to live, what person to marry, how to raise our children. Our life seems like an endless stream of decision after decision, choice after choice. And we have a God who loves giving us choices in life. He's even given us the ultimate choice of whether to believe in him or not, whether to accept the gift and offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, or not. We're never coerced. Choices are never made for us. We live and breathe and journey in an environment of free will. Choices are ours and ours alone to make. No one can make them for us. Listen to what Eleanor Roosevelt once said. One's philosophy is not best described in words. It is expressed in the choices we make. In the long run, we shape our lives and we shape ourselves. The process never ends until we die, and the choices we make are ultimately our responsibility. It's so true. The choices in life that we make are our responsibility. Sometimes we wish they weren't. We, we want to blame others for influencing us. We, we want to defer the decision. We can wait. We can procrastinate. But in the end, your life choices must be made by you and you alone. How many times have we postponed a, a difficult choice, hoping that, well, time will make the decision for us? It never does. When I was a boy, my father, a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song, tenor Luciano Pavarotti relates. He urged me to work very hard to develop my voice. Arrigo Pola, a professional tenor in my hometown of Modena, Italy, took me as a pupil. At the same time, I also enrolled, he says, in a teacher's college. Upon graduating, I asked my father, shall I be a teacher? or a singer. I thought perhaps, he says, I could pursue both. Luciano, my father replied, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. <laughs> For life, you must choose one chair. Amen. Choose a chair, Luciano. The young graduate chose singing. He devoted himself to his choice and his craft, and the rest is history. Choose one chair. What else is important to know about choices? Choices have consequences, don't they? I'm not talking about the mundane preferences of life, but the important choices we make, the life decisions. Sometimes we think a choice we're making doesn't really matter. It's not an important one, we think, but Make no mistake, choices we think nothing much of end up having big consequences in our lives. And what happens is when we're not right with God, we're not in a right relationship with Christ, the line moves, right? The bucket of, of, of what we think are important choices gets smaller. And we start to use words like, oh, it doesn't really matter. What's the harm in this? It does matter. We become numb to the gravity of our decisions, and we, we start to rationalize the long-term effects that the choices we make have. Do you think there are no consequences to how we choose to spend our time? Do we think there are no consequences to how we choose to spend our money? 
Do we think there are no consequences to who we choose to be friends with? Who we hang around, who we allow our children to be friends with. Our relationships can shape our character. They influence our decisions and they affect our opinions. Take a look at Samson if you think it doesn't matter who you have a relationship with. Take a look at Lot if you think it really doesn't matter where you choose to live. Take a look at the life of Solomon if you think separation from the world is overblown. Take a look at Judas if you think a single business transaction won't affect your life. Come on, that's being overly dramatic. You're pointing out the extremes from Scripture. There's no right and wrong to the everyday choices in my life. There's no gravity like that. There is. Do you know that for every important choice we make in our lives, there's a God-preferred option? We don't like to think of it that way because it puts the onus, it puts the responsibility on ourselves to find out what God's preferred choice for us is, doesn't it? We want to think of it that it doesn't really matter. That, that all things being equal, all things are really equal. They're not. God gives us the choice to make at every turn in our lives. But he has a preferred choice he wants us to make. The choice is ours to make, but the outcome is his to know. We're not privy to the future. We're not privy to the impacts and consequences that our choices have, but he holds the future in his hands. He knows those consequences before they even happen. And it's not always easy. I know sometimes the, the choices we know God wants us to make are the most difficult of all the possible options. And we rationalize and we project and we theorize and we try everything we can do to justify taking another road, choosing another option. We don't want the difficult path. And then finally we use the ever popular, most abused term in Christendom. I don't have peace about that. Yes. Yeah, you know it? Yeah. <laughs> the lack of peace, the lop excuse. I've used it many times in my life. I've tried ever since I was a little kid. Mother, I don't have peace about continuing on with piano lessons. <laughs> really, you don't have peace? Well, find peace because you're going to continue on. It's the right thing to do and you're going to do it. See, so often we, we play that card to justify what we want instead of what we know is right. I don't have peace about option A, but I have peace about option B. No, that's not peace. That's your preference. I'm going to tell you a secret, friend. If you know what God's will is in your life and it's backed up by scripture and his principles and prayer and counsel, then it does not matter how you feel about it. You can feel angst, you can feel worry, you can feel frustration or fear about it, but it doesn't matter. If it's God's will, do it. Do it. Defy your emotions and do the right thing. There's a sacrifice to be made. It's costly, but make no mistake, there's always a cost to pay for our choices. Whether it's the, the cost of sacrifice now or the cost of regret later, there's always a cost to pay. So it brings us then to how do we make our choices? How do we choose? What constitutes our decision-making process? What's the basis for helping us make our choices, as difficult as they sometimes may be? Logic, emotion, 
the advice of trusted friends, they're all common factors that influence the choices we make. But if we claim to be sold out for Christ, if that is our faith and foundation, if our words claim that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord, then he must be at the heart of our choices. The principles of God as found in his word must be the basis for every life decision we make. We must seek his will for the life choices we make, not our emotions, not our preferences, not our comfort level. We must seek his will. I may meddle a bit here, but I want you to think about the choices you've made in your life in your schedule, in your hobbies, in how you spend your time, in your relationships. How about the choices you've made for your kids? What do your choices say about your faith? Choose wisely. Pick a chair, friend. Make sure it's the right one, the choice God wants you to make and the one he wants you to choose. So first, is our faith clearly evident in our choices? Second, is your faith evident in your causes? Look around our world today. Everywhere you look, there's a cause, there's a movement, there's a platform. I thought I'd seen and heard it all till recently I, I received a brochure, beautiful brochure. And uh, it urged anyone who will listen to join us in the fight against, you ready for this, energy drinks. Now, I neither promote nor discourage energy drinks, but I at once found myself shaking my head in sadness and then, and then laughing that this was someone's life cause. That a group of someone's somewhere was devoting time, effort, money, energy, resources for the elimination of energy drinks. And it was a beautiful brochure. When we look at the world around us, you see so much skill, so much talent, so many resources. And, and I truly echo the words of a well-known pastor who said, I've never seen such first-rate talent dedicated to such second-rate causes. If we could take the collective energy, the time, the effort, the talent, and put it into the only worthwhile cause, what a world it would be what an impact we could have and make in our world. If we claim as believers that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord, that he is the one who we are sold out to, then the only worthwhile cause, the only eternally worthwhile cause is the cause of Christ. Amen. The cause to tell a broken world about a healer whose name is Jesus. The cause to bring his hope to a world who is, that is so hopeless so lost, the cost to shine his light into the darkest recesses of emptiness around us. Friend, that's just, that's not just a cause, a cause worth fighting for, living for, and living for, and dying for. It is the only cause worth fighting for, living for, and dying for. So take a look at your causes today. For what do people know you? I worked for years with someone who was, who was known as being the great evangelist of online marketing. It wasn't just his job, it was his passion. I saw it, he lived and breathed it. 
He taught seminars about it. In his free time, he wrote about it, and he studied it. It was his cause. And in the end, what will he have? What will he hold in his hands when he meets his maker? We waste so much time, so much effort, so much money taking up causes that mean nothing in the light and scope of eternity. Ask yourself today, are the causes I spend my time and my energy and my efforts and my money on promoting the kingdom of God? Is my faith, is what I claim clearly evident in my causes? Third question, is your faith evident in your character? D.L. Moody's famous quote, we've heard it many times, character is what you are in the dark. I love that quote, but character doesn't stay in the dark. Who you are in the dark is always revealed in the light. And while it's true that reputation is what people say about you and character is what God knows about you, that character never stays hidden for long. It can't. Your character permeates every part of your life. Your character infuses your thought life. Your character infuses your speech, your actions, your habits, your relationships, and yes, ultimately, your reputation and your legacy. Character is how you deal with the circumstances in life. It's your moral constitution. <coughs> it's how you handle crisis as well as how you handle blessings. As believers, character is defined as what we allow God to do in our lives and how much we comply. God wants to build up strong men and women of strong spiritual characters, doesn't he? We have a limitless God who can do anything, but he's limited only by how much we let him work in us. He never forces us. He never coerces us. But our character tells much then about our submission to God. Look at our heroes of the faith, whether they be from scripture, whether they be from people around us. Those who we admire most, who have the strongest characters are the ones who have most submitted themselves and allowed themselves to be vulnerable and pliable to the Lord. Thank you. The hard heads, the strong-willed, the stubborn, the I'm going to do things my way kind, we know who we are. Those are the ones God has to work harder on for longer, to break, to mold, and to build up character within. What does your character say about your faith? What does how you deal with crisis say about your faith? Does it lead to trust and submission or bitterness and anger? What does how you deal with blessings say about your faith? Does it lead to, to generosity and thankfulness and humility? Or does it lead to arrogance and pride? See, we can't honestly think character doesn't matter. That, that we can mold our reputation such that people only see of us what they want to. We can mold our image so no one can see behind the mask to what our character really is. It can't happen. Your life speaks of your character, whether you want it to or not. The results of your life, which everyone can see, speaks of your character. Listen to this. 
In life, you cannot rise above the limitations of your character. I'll say that again. In life, you cannot rise above the limitations of your character. Have you ever seen very highly successful and very talented people who when they reach a certain level of success, they fall apart? We see it every day, from CEOs to Hollywood stars. Why? Success without a strong character and a strong foundation is bound for failure. It's no different in our spiritual lives. Whatever act we try and put on, whatever, whatever walk and path we take, if our character is not built up underneath, it'll all come crumbling and crashing down. In difficult times, in times of stress, in times of crisis, how can we be successful if we have not let God build up our characters? And it will affect every part of our lives, our marriage, our careers, our relationships, your spiritual life, it's all impacted by how much we comply with God and the characters we have. Friend, think about it. What does your character say about you? Are you striving to have the character of Christ? Have you let God do the work and continue to do the work He needs to in you? Have you submitted yourself to Him totally and let Him build you up into the man or woman of God He wants you to be? When people describe your character, how many adjectives do they use that start with self? Self-willed, self-made, self-centered. Have you let God remove the self in your life and replace it with himself? The faith you claim and the words you say mean nothing to a watching world if there isn't a character there to back it up. Your choices, your causes, and your character. Last point, is your faith evident in your service? I serve the Lord. I have ministries. I, I'm not just about words, but I'm a person of action. That's great. How well do you perform your ministries? How much of yourself do you throw into them? How much of your heart is invested in what you do for Christ? I've always been a big believer in the phrase excellence in ministry. If we do something for Christ, then we better do our best. It doesn't matter if it's preaching to a stadium full of people or cleaning out church bathrooms. There's no small ministry when it's done for Christ. Amen. Whatever we think of as, as too small or too meaningless, if it's a ministry done for Christ and a need for Him, then it shines like the largest beacon up to His throne. You know, one of my favorite ministries is... And it has nothing to do with music or singing or preaching. It's making the little labels that say wine for the communion service. Yeah, don't laugh. See, they're too small to be pre-cut. You can't buy them. I've looked. 20 years I've looked. So you've got to print these things and hand cut each one. And they're minuscule. And my, my fingers go numb from cutting hundreds of these at a time. But I get the biggest kick out of it when Dean says, we need more labels. You know, if it's enough to be a need for the Lord in the house of the Lord, I'm on it. That's all I need to know. And I will go up against anyone as the greatest little custom label cutter <laughs> in the world. That's not arrogance. That's caring about our ministries. That's wanting to do a good job for the Lord.
Luke 16, 10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Are you serving the Lord today? And more importantly, how well do you serve Him? In what manner do you carry out your service for Him? Whether it's behind the pulpit, on the roof of this building, helping in Sunday school, serving coffee, in the fellowship room, whatever form our service comes in, how well do you do it? How much of your heart is thrown into it? How faithful, how diligent are you in the work for Christ? What do people say about your ministries? Shoddy, doesn't really seem to care, kind of going through the motions, how tragic that would be. If we confess Christ with our lips, is our faith evident in our service? Our choices, our causes, our character, and our service. Is Christ at the heart of each and every one of these? Is the faith you talk about evident in every one? Can the people around you see Christ lived out in your life, not just in your words? You know, I could stand up here and tell you I'm a golfer. I could go out and buy the best set of clubs I could find. I can wear the trendiest golf attire. I can look the part. But put a club in my hand and throw me out onto a golf course, you'll find out very quickly that I'm no golfer. All the words I say, all the parts I play, and how I dress up, they mean nothing if the results aren't there. So how about you? Christ is asking you today the same question he stood and asked Peter and the disciples 2,000 years ago. Who do you say that I am? Is the answer to that question an inconvenient truth? like it was for the spiritual leaders of the day. When Jesus first came to us, the truth that he was the Son of God and the only way to the Father and the only means through which we can have eternal life, that didn't sit well with the spiritual leaders of the day because it affected their agenda. It meant that they were out of jobs. Jesus Christ came to cut out the middleman. The positions they held would no longer be needed if that truth was accepted. It is easier to bury the truth than change your life in light of it. Does that truth mean your life needs to change? Does that truth mean your lifestyle needs to change? Who do you say that I am? You can formulate the greatest answer, and you can even believe it with all your heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. But what does Matthew 7, 16 say? You will know them by their fruits. He wants more than your words, friend. Is your answer manifested and made crystal clear by the life you lead? He wants to be your choice. He wants to be your cause to build your character and to be at the center and heart of your service. But none of it can begin until he has your heart first. Today, if you can echo the words that Peter spoke and said, Lord, you are the son of the living God, but your life doesn't reflect that or go anywhere beyond that, friends, something's missing. If you've never given your heart fully to Christ, if you've never opened up and invited him into your heart and your life, he's waiting for you today.
With open arms, he's waiting to forgive your sins, to put joy in your heart, to love you like you've never been loved, and to give you an eternity in heaven with him. Don't wait another minute. Accept his loving offer today. Open your heart and receive him, and let him change your life to now reflect your faith. And dear believer, with an honest heart, ask yourself today, each and every one of us, are the words that I say and is the faith that I hold on to clearly evident in my life? Are you living the life of an open book believer, a clear follower of Christ, or is it a life of hypocrisy? <clears throat> I, I read a great illustration in a devotion recently about hypocrisy. And it was a man, a Christian man, who would come to church on Sunday, and then every other day of the week, his life was filled with anger and rage and bitterness. And he said, you know what? I'm, I can't come to church. I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. He had it wrong. See, if he's a believer and he's saved by the blood of Christ, his standing with God is marked ransomed, redeemed. That's who he is. This is where he belongs. The hypocrisy isn't when he's here. The hypocrisy is when he's living that life outside of church. Can a watching world see Christ in my choices, in my causes, in my character, and in my service? If the picture is cloudy, friend, something's wrong. If I say one thing and live another, something's wrong. If I'm a different person at my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my school, that I'm sitting here at church, something's gone terribly wrong. Somewhere along the line, we replaced Christ at the center of our lives with something else. And it doesn't matter what that else is. It's infiltrated our lives. It's affected every part of it. It can be anything from a desire to greed, to a hurt, to a grudge, to a secret sin, to a misguided pursuit. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is, it's there. And we've got to get rid of it. We need to remove it and put Christ back at the center and on the throne of our lives. Let him recapture your heart and reestablish himself as the basis for your choices, your causes, your character, and your service for him. Let your life speak loudly as the answer to his question today. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you at the close of this meeting with an earnest desire to reestablish your sovereignty at the center of our lives. We want more than anything for our faith to be evident in every part of our lives, Lord. Not just in the words we say, but in all of it. We want Christ to shine through our choices, to shine through our causes, our priorities, how we spend our time, our efforts, to shine through our relationships, our characters, our service for you. We bring them all before you, and we bring you whatever it is Lord, that's gotten in the way of that. We lay it at your feet and we walk away from it. Be the Lord of our lives. Be the Lord of our words. Be the Lord of our actions and our thoughts. 
Be Lord over our relationships, our finances, our dreams, and our desires. We completely submit to you, Lord, and we look forward with great excitement at what you will do in, with, and through a life that is truly sold out for you. With all of our hearts, we offer our thanks and our love to you. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen.